Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, February 12th, 2010. All right, I don't have the Rick Warren, Mark Driscoll stuff ready to go yet. That's going to have to wait until Monday. Cutting that up is uh, a little bit, it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle, if you would. Excited for it, though. So today's going to cover a singular topic. I, I know it's like two Friday lights in a row. What are we going to do? <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God, to the Word of God. There is just no shortage of really, really bizarre and apostate opinions running around about God. And yet uh, we, as Christians, have a message given to us to boldly proclaim, and it's found in the Scriptures. And that message is the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. There is no other name in, given under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Plain and simple. And uh, Christianity is not a message about your self-improvement or finding something inside of you and digging it up and polishing it off and discovering your purpose or your destiny or anything like that. No. Christianity is about, first and foremost, discovering that you're not a good person, that you, just like everybody else on this planet, is a sinner in need of a savior. The only solution offered in Scripture is Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins. And he calls all people in all nations to repentance and receiving the forgiveness of sins won by him on the cross. That's the message that we've been called to proclaim, to teach and confess. And uh, so as a result of that, that's what we do here. And where stuff runs afoul of what's written in Scripture, well, we point that out and encourage you to do the hard work of actually digging into your Bibles as well. Now, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, uh, we have Jeremy Bauma. That's, his, that's how we pronounce his last name. Jeremy Bauma. And uh, he spent time as an insider inside of the emergent church in the emergent conversation, uh, attended McLaren's church, knows Doug Paget, Tony Jones, and all, the, the folks of the emergent conversation cohorts personally because he's spent time for the last five years uh, in conversation with them. And uh, we're going. I'm going to be interviewing him today, and the interview 
Uh, in fact, I recorded it earlier. The interview is going to, he's going to walk us through the things that led up to him getting into that conversation and theologically the things that caused him to abandon the conversation and instead step outside and call and basically take their, uh, their theology to task. So, and this is from an insider. This isn't, this isn't me as an outsider looking in. This is somebody who's intimately been involved in the emergent conversation. And uh, he has much to tell us. And so with that, we're going to dive into my uh, interview with uh, Jeremy Balma. Here we go. All right, on the line, I have Jeremy Balma. And uh, he is the gentleman who uh, runs the website, the blog, NovusLumen.net. That's N-O-V-U-S-L-U-M-E-N.net. And uh, he's uh, been somewhat of an insider in the emergent church for the last five or so years. And on his uh, blog, on his website, he's uh, pretty much said that he's going to be taking emergent theology to task, kind of an about-face, if you would. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Uh, Sure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Now, I've been following your blog for a while now. And uh, when I saw your post earlier this week that uh, you were going to be taking emergent theology to task, I realized that, there, that there's something that's profoundly changed in uh, your theology and, and how you're viewing things. And I thought uh, it would be really beneficial for people to hear your story. You know, how did you get involved in the emergent conversation and what began to set you on a different trajectory to where now you're publicly taking some of their theological concepts to task and even sure. c- calling their gospel something that's other. So uh, walk us through it. Uh, how, did, how did you get involved in the emergent church? Sure. Thanks, Chris. Uh, first, I'd like to say at the outset that I never intended to set out to be the sort of poster child for emergent defection, which is sort of what is uh, happening this past week. Um, my post created much more of a larger firestorm than I expected both uh, within emergence but also outside. Um, so I want to say at the outset that that's not what I intended to do in posting this, but uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity and the platform, I guess, to be able to share why I've become uncomfortable with the trajectory, the theological trajectory of this conversation, this movement within evangelicalism, mm-hmm. uh, which I didn't expect at all. And I guess to answer your question, I so let me back up and sort of share some of my story. I grew up in uh, western Michigan, sort of conservative, uh, uh, fundamentalist Christianity. Uh, grew up in a Bible, non-denominational church, okay. and attended a Baptist school in Ohio, and was rooted in the, the faith of our fathers. I had a great uh, Christian education in my church. I loved... Um, being rooted in the fundamentals of the faith while growing up. And after undergraduate, moved to Washington, D.C., where I was introduced to a world very different than the world in which I had grown up uh, that was not as welcoming and inviting to Christianity. And I initially went to D.C. to work in politics and ended up doing ministry work in our nation's uh, government on Capitol Hill, where I came face-to-face with the reality of our post-Christian and post-modern culture. And during that time, I began to really wrestle with what this whole Christian thing is about in light of the conversations I was having with the people that I was trying to minister to. And so I began to sort of 
journey a year into ministry, uh, looking at the faith that I was sort of handed myself growing up uh, in my undergraduate education at this Baptist institution, and also the work I was doing in ministry and wondering what, you know, what's happening, what is going on, and began to uh, rethink the things that I had grown up with in light of the critiques I was hearing from my friends and in light of the things I was seeing in politics regarding the church and the state and the manner in which our ministry was sharing the gospel, the way we communicated the gospel, these these things began to stir up within me these questions. And in seeking out uh, answers and seeking out space to ask those questions, I stumbled upon emergent, which of course is uh, billed as a uh, uh, community of conversation among friends that is generating open dialogue and you know, progressive thought, right? And uh, so I was thankful to stumble into this conversation because they were asking the exact same questions I was asking. What is Christianity about? What is the gospel? Uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is it, how does it look to relate to culture? Uh, what does sin mean? How does sin cash out in relationships? Um, what does Jesus' rescue do for us? What does the cross do for I mean, all these things I began wading through myself. These were at, being asked, uh, what is the kingdom of heaven? Why is that important for life now? And uh, how does life look on, on the other side of the return of Christ? And, and so that is how I kind of came into this conversation. Um, I myself began to really wrestle with questions. I came to, in some ways, a crisis of faith. Um, because what I had been handed, what I had grown up with, really was not connecting anymore or made sense in light of the world that I was kind of thrust into and thrown into. Okay, so uh, okay, I want to pause there for a second. So sure. you uh, and kind of recap and see if I can you know, put a little finer point on some of this. Uh, right. So you, you grow up in, in conservative evangelicalism, okay? Yes. And you're you're taught the Christian faith. You get to Washington D.C. By the way, I, I did a stint. Uh, I was the treasurer for the Republican Party out in oh. uh, in Riverside County for a few years. So I I've, oh wow okay I've <clears throat> I I let's just say after being behind the scenes in politics, I would never want to be involved in politics ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I share that sentiment. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, I, I completely get how uh, you know what you perceive going into the situation, and the reality of the situation creates a huge <laughs> rethinking of things uh, yes. upon arrival into the real world. And, right. and so, uh, so where where was the difficulty? What? How was it that you were? Perceive what? What did you think the gospel was at that point, and how was that uh, colliding with the real world? Uh, you know, prior to you go- getting involved in in the emergent conversation. Sure, I. Uh, great questions. I think for me, it, it's along two lines. Um, one, the gospel, the way in which the gospel was communicated. I so I worked for. Um, a ministry arm of Dr. D. James Kennedy. Okay. Okay. Um, many of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with him, and especially his uh, evangelism explosion, um, which God has certainly used to bring people to Christ, uh, to Himself, to rescue them from their sin, rebellion, and and I it is not familiar when I 
thrown up with this sort of method. But in short, it, it basically, for me, and this is the problem I had, reduced the majestic, beautiful story of God's rescue to uh, five talking points mm-hmm. that centered entirely around saving a person from their sins and hell to bring them into heaven. Okay. Now, don't get me wrong, I certainly believe in the reality of individual sin. Uh, I certainly believe in uh, the necessity for redemption from that sin that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. I certainly believe in hell and judgment, mm-hmm. and the reality of everlasting life through Christ, right? Okay. Um, but for me, the way in which that whole story was parsed down to simply salvation from sin and hell into heaven began to it just, I guess in some ways it wasn't enough, or it, perhaps it wasn't the big, the broader story. Okay, right? right. God, it wasn't the broader story. So in one sense, that was it. The method in which we shared um, sort of selling Jesus like a vacuum cleaner method. Uh, yeah, okay. I don't want to disparage Dr. Kennedy or these other sort of methods for spiritual laws, right. um, Romans Road, which reduces Jesus and the story down to this, uh, one, I, I thought was just sort of faulty in a theological sense, but in a pragmatic sense, was completely disconnected from the world that I was in okay. and waiting around in, okay? And uh, just to give a or kind of an intro to the type of mission on Capitol Hill, the the mission field is basically, as I sort of look at it, um, a, a postmodern young adult ministry, uh, which you may not think of Capitol Hill as that, but it is a community of 24,000 congressional staffers, average age is 27. Kind of the Georgetown, uh, you know, smart, educated. uh, Exactly. Yeah, I I, I know the type, and and so, you know, their ability to ask really tough questions is, uh, (laughs) I don't think anyone else can can do it quite the way they do. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so... So on the one hand, that was that was one part of it. The other part was a way in which uh, the church intersected with culture, particularly through politics. Uh, I, in my, the ministry in which I was involved with, and my position and my vantage point, saw some very unfortunate things from both sides, a way in which uh, the church sort of gave herself over to the state um, to have a seat at the table, and vice versa, the way in which the state has used the church to further its own powerful and political ends. Yeah, hey, I, I want to I, make me I want to yeah. highlight that fact. Okay, that's I think the sure. one that I that a lot of people don't get. Yeah. Um and that is is that uh, many times when it comes to Christians and politics in the United States of America, uh there is a belief and a perception that uh that what's happening is that uh, the church is speaking prophetically to uh, the political parties when in reality the political parties have <laughs> all kinds of ways of manipulating uh, exactly. different religious groups for their political ends. And I, this is one of the things that just, when I saw it in action, I wanted to vomit. Yes, Chris, anecdotal story. Uh, so I was in, not really involved with it, but I had the privilege of being at the um, uh, Bush's uh, campaign election party uh, the evening of uh, what November 2004, uh-huh. and um, r- through that experience and hearing some of the uh, results afterwards, evangelicals um, formed a major voting block in that election, mm-hmm. which is great. 
25% of the voting bloc in 04 were evangelicals, 90, 85% of which voted for George Bush, right? They represent about 9% of the population. Okay. So on the one hand, there's this positive positivity that you know, evangelicals have this uh, ability to speak prophetically into uh, at least an election and also the culture. But then a few months later, there was this poll that was conducted of members of Congress by this magazine called National Journal. It's sort of a trade publication in, in the city. And they, one of the questions they asked members were, if you could ignore an interest group without worrying about the political implications and fallout, what would you ignore? And for Democrats, it was, I believe the top two were actually the pro-choice, NARAL, uh-huh. wing, and then the AFL-CIO, the union. So if the Democrats didn't have to worry about the political fallout of ignoring them, they would, but they don't because of their power, right? Right. And uh, for Republicans, number two, uh, NRA, the gun rights organization, number one, religious rights. Yep. And again, on the one hand, it shows, okay, man, we have a seat at the table, we have power, whatever. But on the other hand, it just it made me realize, wow, the church has been reduced to one more interest group right. among a sea of others. Mm-hmm. And what they don't realize is that behind doors, when politicians talk, they say things like, well, if we do this, then we'll garner the support of this group and that will help us achieve this end. It's exactly. not they're not do they're not making decisions based on principle. They're making decisions based upon uh, kind of maneuvering in their mind, which if they have the right combination of political interest groups, they'll maintain their their seat in uh, or or their position in in the right. you know. And so, they, I, I was absolutely just it it was a real eye opener. You know, kind of a, in a uh, in a sense along the lines of a of an initiation story as to like wow yeah. this is sure. you know these guys really you know they they will they are so two-faced they will go and they will shake your hand and they'll pray with you and everything like that and then get behind the back doors and you know put a knife in your back and basically talk about well if I do this it'll garner their support so that I can achieve this end and it's exactly. and so it's it's unprincipled it's uh. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, and to see how the bride of Christ is used yes. by either both political parties. I'm not just it's not just about Republicans, Democrats, the progressive evangelicals as well as conservative evangelicals. I mean, they it's both sides of the aisle. Right. Uh, to see how the bride is used and abused mm-hmm. to further those powerful ends just made me sick. And even more so to be a bit more pointed, to see how the church runs to uh, the Hill, or the White House government, in, in the interest of securing her own sort of uh, cultural aims, right, it was also very disheartening to realize, folks, we don't need Washington D.C. as the bride of Christ to do what we have been commissioned to do, right. And what I had seen was that that seemed to be the case that that what the church, what God's story, was reduced to were a few political talking points on either side right yep it, yeah, the, the, so yeah go ahead i just it is a whole weakness in the system and so all right yeah. so you get i'm 24 that's right i'm 24 a year into ministry i started at 23 i was 24 um and just sort of reeling from these realizations and and not knowing what to do with um kind of both of these 
twin perspectives. Right. Now, I want to point something out here, too. Uh, culturally in evangelicalism, this is where I think the, the profound shift that's been taking place over the last 30 years as a result of the rise of the CEO model of leadership is that you've got you've got the rise of these little church empires and uh, and their seeker driven megachurch pastors is that in those types of churches when you have a crisis of conscience like this your pastor right. doesn't have any time to answer your questions <coughs> you know and exactly. and so what happens is is that this this new way of doing ministry actually creates alienation for a lot of people because uh, you know, you got the typical evangelical youth group kid who's grown up in 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 the really exciting, fun, fast-paced uh, youth group. You know, with, you know, two hundred and fifty, three hundred kids, and it's all these little programs and entertainment stuff, and and the the Bible teaching. And a lot of times, is kind of really thin, and they're not really preparing kids for for these kinds of rude awakenings. And then what happens right. is is that I've I've gotten so many emails from people that said. You know, you know, when I tried to go back and ask my pastor about this stuff, and you know, he didn't—he ha- didn't even have the time of day for me, and I couldn't go anywhere for, to ask these questions. And this is one of the reasons why the emerging conversation is so appealing, is because you—you sure. you can have a conversation with these guys. They're actually interested in you coming to them with their questions, having a conversation, laying things out, and basically sharing your concerns and. And and in in a deep and profound way, where you're not going to have your questions just waved off because you've asked something deeper than you know. Does the Bible teach? Does Jesus love me? You know. And uh, so exactly. So did that, did any of that play into your story then too? Uh, certainly, I. And I, you know, I don't. I have a fond experience in the ministry in which I was in. I love those people, uh, but to be honest, there was not space to wrestle with these important questions, mm-hmm. uh, both in a theological sense, but also in a, a missional sense. How does this look to do ministry in this culture? Right. Um, how do we communicate? How do we? Even, how should we even be thinking about this story in light of um, the theology, which has sort of come down through history? And, and so, yeah, here I'm wrestling with some of these questions, and I didn't feel that there was even permission to be asking them... Um, in light of just the way in which they sort of operated. And, you know, and I understand it was sort of Dr. Kennedy's ministry, and mm-hmm. we were using Evangelism Explosion, and, and I pushed back against that type of method, and it wasn't all that well-received, uh, which is probably why I gravitated towards this environment, which was very uh, permissive. Right. Certainly. Yeah, one of the things I, I've I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I have uh, Tony Jones on my cell phone. I have Doug Paget on my cell phone. I have Nadia Bowles Weber on my cell phone. In fact, if I wanted to include any of them in this conversation right now, I could call them up. And if they're not busy, the chances are they'd jump in on this conversation. Sure. You know, but the thing is, is yeah, that, I know Doug and Tony yeah, and right. I consider them all to be friends. Um, you know, I I think they're in serious, dangerous theological waters, um, and uh, what they're teaching is is very, very, very dangerous to uh, people's souls to the point where, um, you know, it's it's just outright rank heresy. You know, that being the case, they know where I'm coming from, uh, and I know where they're coming from, and we're actually able to have a civil conversation. I have yet to uh, have a conversation with Brian McLaren, though. I'm looking forward to that someday. 
But um, right. the point is, is that um, I can't call Rick Warren. I can't call Bill Hybels. I can't get a hold of Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble, or any of the CEO uh, kind of guys. You can't get past their uh, you know, their peoples. You their know, handlers. Right, exactly. And so as a result of it, I think that is a profound uh, symptom of what's, you know, one of the greater issues here is, is that while the uh, seeker-driven CEO church is, is out there building their little empires and they have their little ha- handlers and it's, they're run more like Fortune 500 corporations than an organic body of Christ. Sure. And one of the, one of some of the fallout of this is that uh, when your teenagers uh, go to college – and uh, and hit the real world, and you know, come up against people who haven't been raised Christians, have some really good questions, uh, really you know, it, it outright you know, well thought out skepticism, or that unbelieving philosophy prof who's you know who chalks up on his chalkboard how many kids he's been able to convert from Christianity to atheism. Uh, the problem right. is this, these uh, these market driven churches are not doing the job of, of either preparing kids for this, right. and uh, worse, when they come back for help, there's no. The, I'm sorry, our focus is on doing this, and that's that's not in our core. Uh, that's not in our core market or, or functions, and so we can't really help you. <laughs> Well, and Chris, the way in which those churches are organized, uh, I myself was a part of a megachurch in uh, Northern Virginia, which actually sort of plays into some of my story, and just becoming sick of the way in which church operated and uh, was organized. The way those churches are organized is that you have the, the communities in which people are really a part of are led by people who may have great hearts for people and organizing bowling trips and movie outings, have very little or shallow biblical and theological education. So when those questions come up, where is the space for them to even ask them and get good, competent answers? Yeah, I, when, I yeah, yeah. I always when, love the guy who you know he he you know I, I I didn't graduate from high school, but uh, you know I God called me into the ministry, and you know and I'm you know <laughs> right you know and, oh man <laughs> I just I just yeah, you can't go pop, with my heart. Yeah, you, know, you can't pop in a DVD. When somebody has a question to ask, right. and say, "Hey, we're going to watch," because that's—I mean—that's what these by and large small groups, right? We're watching the DVDs of whomever, great teachers, but we're really wrestling with the text itself as a community taught by uh, trained people. Right. Yeah. So I hear, I hear what you're saying exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and like I said, part of my growing disillusionment was in some ways born out of the church I was a part of, which was great. It was well-run, Bible-centered, gospel-centered, but I'd be, uh, like spending $15 million on a building project, uh, mm-hmm. or $30 million on a bi- building project, um, flat-screen TVs all around, the fog machines, the light shows, for me, I just began to get sick of the way in which modern evangelicalism had had been playing out so, in my life personally and broadly. Right. And I think this actually plays into what I consider to be some of the very valid, valid complaints and Absolutely. critiques that the emergent Certainly. conversation has against what has happened to American evangelicalism. They're so caught up in spending multi-millions of dollars on their 
basically they each church has become a professional quality television studio and sure. you know and <laughs> sure. and and here's the deal i mean um the pictures coming out of you know our, the church i'm a member of here in uh, in indiana we have a mission church that we support i mean overtly support in haiti and um when you see the pictures of our mission church if you it, it it it's hard to even imagine that it's first of all a church first of all the building that they they meet in if you can even call it that is is literally outdoor on, on a grassy kind of plane if you would and it's poles that are sticking up out of the ground with with a grass thatched roof and it, and there's no walls wow okay and the floor is dirt and it, and you know what Here's the deal. Every one of the people that we send down there, when they come back, they're, they're fir- first and foremost, their their comments are, I cannot believe how much joy these people have. They have absolutely right. nothing. These are people right. who may own two or three sets of clothes, you know, barely, you know, have anything. And, you know, they have children and responsibilities, a job that pays nothing, you know, bad housing conditions, bad sanitary conditions. This tiny little church, and, and every single time they come back, you, you got people saying the most profound worship experience I've ever been a part of. I was just there, and it, and it was in Haiti. It's not here in the United States. We don't need all these trappings, you know. Exactly. And and so we've somehow said, in the name of evangelism, it's okay for us to spend thirty million dollars, fifteen million dollars, uh, in order to create this show because we have to quote be relevant. And the more right. relevant these churches have become, in, in reality, the less in touch they've become, the, the less in touch they are to the real needs of the people in their congregation. Exactly. All right, we're going to pause right there and continue with my interview with Jeremy Bauma on the other side of this break. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. I'm generally a friendly guy there. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. 
Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheap O Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheap O Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheap O Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th. Wait, stop. No, it's good through February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, the Bible has a category known as apostasy. The emergent church sadly fits into that category. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That we means we depend upon your generous contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. And I don't know if you know this, but by supporting Fighting for the Faith, you actually support 
the entire mission of Pirate Christian Radio itself. Kid you not. And uh, the reason why is because, well, we're we're the home base for Pirate Christian Radio, if you would. So uh, supporting Fighting for the Faith uh, really helps our entire mission uh, as Christian pirates, if you would. And so the way you support us uh, is visit our website, and there's two things you can do there. Uh, we recommend that you join our crew. Right now we're uh, over halfway to our goal of having 500 people sign up for the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Crew. It is a mere $6.95 a month, and when you join, you get access to our Pirate Cove, which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you grow deeper into God's Word and learn how to defend the Christian faith from a very smart and intelligent way. Um Christ-centered way, if you would. So the way you do that is visit FightingForTheFaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button. Of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. You can uh, donate securely there, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, we're in the middle of my interview uh, earlier with uh, Jeremy Bauma from uh, Novus Lumen. .net, that's his uh, website address, and this is a gentleman who is telling us his story of how he got into the emergent church and what ultimately led him out of it. It's a very fascinating and important interview, one that we all need to hear. And so let's continue with that um, interview. Here we go. Anyway, notice how we, I t- we're supposed to be talking about emergent. But <laughs> but I see emergent is so much of it is so valid in their in their questioning and in, in the things that they're bringing up. And so sure. it, it's like, you know, they're trying to hold a mirror up to evangelicals. And the problem is, is that they've actually bought into uh, the epistemology of postmodernism itself, which leads to no answers, but just questions. So, right. <laughs> all right. So, yeah. OK, I, I just I just didn't want to get outside of, you know, I didn't want to move the story along too quickly because. Sure. I I, the, I have a lot of people who listen to my uh, my program who attend conservative evangelical uh, churches, and um, you know this this interview is not about um, it, you know we're we're gonna, we're gonna paint the uh, you know a six 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 tattoo on Brian McLaren's head and and name him to be the Antichrist. That's not really what this is about because in in reality. Much of the emergent conversation is a reaction to the excesses and the very problems that exist within our own churches. And, exactly. And we have got to wrestle with them in a way that is faithful to uh, God's word and also really take a hard look and basically say, what are the, these crit- criticisms? Which of them are valid? And, what, and, and how are we going to deal with these criticisms in light of the very true implications and fruit of the gospel? in our lives and in our community. I think that those are things that we have got to be doing because first of all, I love critics because so many times they point out very obvious things that are wrong that you can't see. So, sure. all right. Now, so you started asking tough questions and the emergent church was there to give you space to ask you these questions. Let's move forward then and, and walk us through that. Yeah. So for me, it wasn't so much done, in, unfortunately, community as much as uh, I would have liked it to have been. Um, I actually began attending Brian McLaren's church, okay. uh, Cedar Ridge Community Church, outside the uh, Washington D.C. in Southern Maryland for a bit, um, and that was an interesting ex- 
experience, it was very different than I expected, not as uh, emergency as you might think that it would have been in terms of sort of the cutting edge uh, missional experiences that are sort of touted within uh, this sort of conversation, the books, uh, the conferences. Um, so it wasn't like the, wasn't like Solomon's portrait. Everything was in the round with the uh, huh, with the couches no. and the you know Oriental rugs and things like that. No, no, uh, there was certainly a an, and I hate to use this kind of buzzword authenticity to uh, the people, the the community there, which I appreciated. One of the things I remember, which is sort of odd, uh, maybe reflective of you know the trend of, uh, of this community, uh, was that there was really no. Bibles anywhere in mm. I remember distinctly when I was there I remember looking around and I was from what I could see the only one who had my Bible with me because I thought that was important to bring to a church gathering mm. and uh, it wasn't it's just that was missing uh, for whatever reason among the people who were there um, every time I was there Brian was teaching and I generally while they were good sort of messages, they weren't rooted in the text, per se. They weren't uh, explaining passages, relating them to our lives. Um, And so that was sort of my entryway into the communal aspect. Most of what uh, my experience with Emergent was were through the blogs, commenting uh, through books from Brian, and Tony Jones and uh, Donald Miller, uh, who's not really a part of that per se, but in that vein. Um, and it was really, the, I think, the trilogy of Brian, which was sort of my my best friend, Pastor Dan and Neo, mm-hmm. uh, were my fellow travelers, which kind of helped flesh out those questions along. Um, but then I stumbled into a community that was not really emergent, but sort of asking the same questions, other young adults who were asking those questions, but also rooted in solid churches. Uh, and I ended up falling into an Episcopal church that um, actually broke away from the Episcopal, the Virginia Diocese over issues of the authority of Scripture. Okay. And and that was a lovely experience, not because it was emergent, but because it gave me a more rooted experience um, of my faith and the creeds and the rule of faith in our historic Christian orthodoxy, mm-hmm. um, both in uh, yeah the recitation of the creeds um, and the way in which the service is sort of organized is very refreshing for me to experience as yeah an evangelical. Um, and then I guess along the way, when I moved back to West Michigan, I got connected to the emergent group here and. Mm-hmm. I love the, the people in that group, uh, great people who are committed to Christ, who want to live out his teachings. Uh, one guy is on the board of a uh, uh, sort of a social justice organization called Kenya Matters that has adopted orphans and is sending aid over to the little village in, in Kenya. Um, and so great things happening, but I guess the conversations that were happening began to puzzle me uh, in terms of just the trajectory of uh, the theology okay. of the 
of the conversation. Okay, give me an example of that. I mean, you've already named one. And that is, is that when you show up in McLaren's church, the, he's not really giving conversations rooted in the text. The Bible doesn't seem to have, you know, it, it doesn't seem to have a central place at all. Uh, what are some other things? You know, give us an example of something that you didn't. You know, the trajectory is off at this point. Sure, I think uh, one big one that comes to mind. It's not particularly theological, but more biblical. Um, for whatever reason, Paul seems like um, the worst guy in the world, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like Paul is is he's easily dismissible. Paul is an idiot. Paul is spouting his own opinions. Paul doesn't matter. It's all about Jesus. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously, Christ is the center of of our faith, but Paul is at least in the circles I roll around in, and um, at least this cohort, it's not even Paul doesn't matter, and that was odd to me because he has for all of Christian history, uh-huh. um, and fleshing out the Jesus way. This is what Paul is doing, uh-huh. and we need both Paul and Jesus in explaining the story that we have committed ourselves to. That was odd. I think the manner in which judgment has been handled uh, was also very odd. Um, slouching into this universalism, which is very different than the 25% of the teachings of Jesus, which revolve absolutely around the idea of an absolute judgment, a separation of uh, those who are his and those who aren't. Right. Um, now, I want to I want to just ask you straight up because here's the deal: is is that I've been saying that uh, the emergent uh, under the hood of the emergent thinking is universalism, this belief that everybody, you know, that the, the good news is good news for everybody, and and, and it ha- it's hasn't been let's say just put out there for everyone you know to see it, it's it, but it's valid implications of the way the conversations are flowing in different people's books so you know you experience this from the inside it, it, do these guys believe it, that uh, in universalism straight up i would say absolutely so given what they have written themselves okay both Doug Paget and his book a christianity worth believing what Brian is coming out with in his new book, A New Kind of Christianity. Uh, there was at least a, a book by another less-known emergent author, Samir Solmanovic, yep. um, who wrote a book called It's Really All About God, in which I actually took him to test and said, no, it's really all about Jesus. There you go. And, uh, yeah, it, there's no denying that there is a universalism within emergent. And to be honest, I mean, there's... Within evangelicalism, there is a strand of Christian universalism. Yep. Um, and that, I mean, I can at least understand that conversation that Jesus is still at the center of God's re- redemptive movement to restore creation, humanity. That I can have a conversation with because it's Christian. Mm-hmm. The universalism that I have seen uh, written about and talked about within the emerging church is not Christian. It is this sort of vapid, capital F faith, which is, isn't is rooted at all in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah. Right. So there's this belief, then, that you can be a follower of Jesus and a faithful Buddhist or a Muslim. Exactly. Okay, which I still have yet to figure out how that works. Uh, um, 
Okay. So yeah. So you you got faithful followers of Jesus who want to blow you up. Okay. Got it. It works for me. Okay. Um. Um. So. All right. Um. That was a reference to Islam. Okay. So right, they got right. universalism. Let me ask you then, real quick, from an insider's point of view, how do uh, how do those involved in and really you know buying into these emergent ideas? deal with the passages where like where Jesus Christ talks about when he comes back he's going to separate everyone like a shepherd separates sheep from goats um you know that there it, it i mean Jesus's own words uh, don't seem to leave any uh a doubt as to whether or not he's going to return in judgment he talks about sure. the fact that anyone who doesn't believe in him remains under God's wrath what happens to these passages how do they handle these passages from Jesus himself in the red letters where he is separating where he's condemning where he's judging where he's talking about god's wrath like in john chapter 8 he says to the pharisees yeah where i'm going you cannot come you will die in your sins and this is this doesn't sound like good news to me you know how does an emergent wrestle with these texts or do they wrestle with them at all sure uh chris you have to understand that for for what i have seen and heard with any emergent theologically the problem is individual people the problem are the systems and patterns and examples and habits that impinge, that force themselves upon an individual, right? Okay. And so it makes sense in that sort of sense that the individual really isn't responsible to Christ as judge, as Lord, because they themselves aren't the problem. Okay. Right? And so my guess, I, to be honest, I haven't really seen really any theological or biblical engagement with those passages. Uh, I could just be ignorant, So, but I, I just haven't. I don't think people tend to deal with them at all. Okay. Um, but my guess is, is that, and I think I'm from what I have sort of gleaned in these conversations, it is more a parsing out of the, the evil and bad that exists as sort of a systemic evil more than an individual individualized evil. Does, does that make sense? Okay. So you, I, I think that does make perfect sense. So there, there is kind of a one of the missing components then is an individualization of sin for individual sinners. Instead, Absolutely. What, instead, what we're looking at here is. Um, what McLaren talks about in his new book, apparently, you know, we didn't fall, uh, man di- mankind didn't fall, but we've been ascending. We went from being agricultural to being city dwellers to being empire builders. And so as we've been progressing upwards, we've also, there's been systemic evils that are, that are a part of each of these new steps up that, uh, that are inherent in the system. And so he's trying to, in a Hegelian way, kind of progress us into a, a into a, a new evolutionary phase of humanity beyond empire. Right. Is, is, is am I am I correct in <laughs> I, I absolutely. Okay. Yeah, the problem isn't me. The problem isn't me as an individual. What I do. The problem is the the systems, the examples, the patterns outside of me which shape me. And I this is what I am dealing with in my recent blog series, taking Doug Paget and his theology and his book of Christianity worth believing to task. Mm-hmm. Um, that is thoroughly. That mirrors the theology of Pelagius, straight up. Okay. I'm not throwing around the Pelagian heresy card uh, willy-nilly here, uh, but as someone who can read the works of Pelagius as alongside the works of Paget, uh-huh. 
All right. There is a absolute similarity between what both how both describe the human condition okay. and the mm-hmm. nature of sin. Right. There's and a com- this is, that's how it cashes out. It's a complete denial of original sin. And so you know, next to Absolutely. Paul, next to Paul is part as far as people to throw rocks at in the emergent conversations. I noticed Augustine doesn't fare very well either in emergent mm-hmm. conversations. Uh, you know, Paul and Augustine are somehow connected, but uh, in in the stuff that I've read and the conversations I've had with uh, emergents, they basically accuse Augustine of bringing Platonism into Christianity, and that's how they can dismiss the doctrine of original sin because it uh, what Augustine did is he brought his uh, platonic philosophy and overlaid it on Christianity, and so they they claim that they're getting to a pure form of it by removing Augustine's Platonism. And that's just nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not. I mean, Brian in his new book basically does the very same thing with our Kuyperian understanding of creation, fall, redemption, uh-huh. and says that that is mirrors the Platonic. Um, storyline of the fall from sort of this uh, perfect state of being. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Plato is a convenient card. Empire is their convenient card. Um, wow. The dualism between the Greek blood god and the Hebrew love god is their mm-hmm. favorite playing card as well. And it's, you just, it's just, I don't get it at all reading Augustine um in that one sense how they come to that conclusion right at all. so in, is it fair then to say on the inside in the emergent conversation um pelagius is a saint and augustine is a heretic huh. that's an interesting way of putting it i i don't i don't know if i would say that people have deliberately chosen and latched onto the theology of Pelagius, if you know what I'm saying, uh-huh. uh, over and against Augustinian theology. Doug, in his book, certainly rejects everything that has flowed from Augustine. He says you don't have to be a fifth century Augustinian in order to be a Christian. He rejects the last 1,500 years of church theological history. Mm-hmm. Um, so sure, I, I that could be an interesting way of of putting it, um, but I, I don't think that there is this deliberate effort to latch on to Pelagius. But on the other hand, there is no deliberate effort to deny his teachings either, or to distance themselves from him, which I don't get or understand because Pelagius and his theology is devastating to God's story of rescue. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I just. I just. By the way, I, I agree with you that there, it's not like they're purposely setting out, out on this path, but it's um, my theological mentor is uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, one of the hosts of the White Horse Inn, and okay. and uh, he, you know, one of the things I remember him telling me, and this is you know one of those profound things that you know that it's kind of stuck with me over the years, is that when people make particular decisions regarding certain doctrines. He says it's like uh, it, it, it's like your your faith is a train on a track, and um, when you when when one you know you know how they have different side spurs and different tracks you know you a, a, a you know a, cha- a train can change over to a different track. There's spurs up ahead that let them do that. He says when you make a particular decisions, what ends up happening almost automatically is is that 
you know, you can be far down the line, but you, 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 you're you going to make a decision to go down this road and reject this particular doctrine. Up ahead, what you don't realize is that by making that decision in your theology, you've automatically thrown certain switches up ahead so that the path sure. that you're on is going to lead you in a particular direction. You know, really kind of unbeknownst to you that you have – it just logically goes that way. And so – and so, well, and I would say that they have made a deliberate choice to reject Augustinian theology. Okay. And what has flown, fr- what has flowed from Augustine, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, for me, the fascinating thing about immersion theology is that, on the one hand, it's so uh, historical that it is not rooted. It, it, there's this effort to both be beyond history in, in the sense that they don't recognize that what we have now in terms of historic Christian orthodoxy has been handed to us mm-hmm. by both history and the Spirit. Right. Right. At, at the time of Augustine, there were there was a deliberate community and a, a, an interpretive community way, way beyond simply one man, the man Augustine, who looked at the issues of the day, the issues dealing with the grace of God, right. uh, the nature of humanity, the nature of sin, and recognize that this perspective, this way of looking at and understanding biblically how the grace of God impacts human nature, follows the line of Augustine. Okay. Okay, this is a community of people who made this decision, and this wasn't this isolated decision, nor was it this postmodern power play where Augustine simply won because he had more friends in power, and so Pelagius lost because he was outmaneuvered, which is the typical sort of postmodern emergent attack line okay. to the Pelagius-Augustine controversy. That's not what happened. History and the Spirit of God in moving deliberately in this particular time and space recognize what the text has been saying all along, that this is the way in which God relates to mankind mm-hmm. through grace and the way in which man relates to, to God out of sin, uh, Purely by the grace of God. And so on the one hand, it's fascinating how they seem to ignore what we have been handed and what we have been given by, the, by history and the Spirit, right? right. But on the other hand, and this is where I get at the whole other form of Christianity, Doug and others desire a different, a new, a fresh version of what we have had, right? But what's fascinating is that it's not different, it's just other. It is a repackaging of other forms of the Christian faith that have existed before. In this one sense, what we see in Doug's book, uh, The Theology of Pelagius. This is a form of faith that existed that is now being repackaged and sold. Uh, You also see, and I I hate to throw out these sort of loaded terms, but theological liberalism is being repackaged and handed and distributed and, and... Build as this new, fresh form of the Christian faith. Yeah, you know what's which is not true. It's so <laughs> not true. It is. It's laughable, and for me, deeply saddening and disheartening because you have a little, in my experience, a whole lot of Christians who are disillusioned, are biblically and theologically ignorant. Okay, mm-hmm. and and to receive this sort of newness and freshness. Is is for them appealing, but unfortunately, not able to be discerned, you know, in a way that 
helps them understand, wow, this really isn't all that new. This really isn't all that different. Right. Well, I've described the uh, where the emergent is after attending the Moltmann Conference and the Christianity 21 Conference put on by uh, Doug Paget and Tony Jones. The way I've been describing the emergent church to people is I, I've been describing it as liberalism 2.0. And sure. and um, it's not it's really a different animal than uh, mo- it's modernist than modernist liberalism. Modernist liberalism denied, you know, basically buys into the tenets of, of modernism and denies uh, the supernatural and, and things of that nature, miracles and stuff like that. And in what I've noticed in the in the I call it liberalism 2.0, it's an upgrade in the software that's that 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 is appealing to. The postmodern culture still intact is a skepticism about uh, the scriptures, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically, you know, tearing it down to myth- mythology level. It's not authoritative. Uh, you can reject Paul because uh, he's a bad guy and all that kind of stuff. But inherent, right. in, in, new in, in new features in liberalism 2.0 is uh, is this idea that well, yeah, maybe maybe miracles are possible. You know, we're not going to say one way or another. If you believe in them, that's okay. But you know, if you don't, then that's okay too. But also is is kind of a almost a panentheistic spiritism that goes along with this thing. So there's a spiritual component of it that wasn't present in modernist liberalism. But right. a, a lot of the same theological conclusions are there, including, yeah. uh, you know, somebody can be an unrepentant practicing homosexual, and God is 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 okay with that, and will completely bless that because they they you know that they, these two guys love each other, you know. Right. And so you know it's it's liberalism, but it's not the same. It's not the same animal that uh, Jay Gresham Machen, uh, you know, B.B. Uh, no. uh, yeah. Warfield, and those guys were dealing with. That's a good way of putting it. So, liberalism 2.0. Sure. Is, is that does that fit with your experience then in the conversation? Sure, I, I certainly. Yeah, I would identify and and uh, yeah, uphold that perspective on the shift theologically within um, this conversation. Okay. All right, we're gonna pause one more time, uh, pay some more bills, and we're gonna continue on the other side of this break with our my interview with Jeremy Balma and, and his story of how he got into and left the emergent church I was with him for about five years. A very insightful insider's view, if you would, of uh, that particular movement. So uh, we're going to take our break. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough 
of this sissy, frenzy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheap O Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th. Wait, stop. No, it's good through February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled. That will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap Write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said, Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we're back. going to be listening to the balance of my interview earlier today with... Jeremy Bauma, somebody who spent five years in the emergent church and is now, well, he's out. Fascinating stuff, good theological conversation. Many of the things I've been saying about this uh, movement for a long time, while they're panning out to be true, and he should know, he's been on the inside. All right, so without any further ado, let's dive into the balance of my interview with Jeremy Bauma. And I mean, for me, part of what I began to realize is that it seems as though that it is a deliberate shift, um, that there is a deliberate theological construction occurring here that really wasn't a part of the conversation when I first entered into it. Okay. For me, at the beginning, it was very missionally oriented. 
uh, in the sense that we were recognizing that we were ex- we exist within a postmodern culture. It just is. Okay. okay? Right. Postmodernity is where we are at. It doesn't mean anti-modern. It just means we are beyond the modern way of viewing the world, of relating to the world, of of living in the world. And and the church had not really come to grips, especially more um, evangelicalism, with that reality at a missional level, as a as sort of a missionary level, in the same way that a missionary goes across seas to Papua New Guinea and is trained by New Tribes Mission to engage that culture in its own customs and its own manners and speak its own language in a way that uh, can connect them to God's story, right? Mm-hmm. That was, that was it seemed to me at least, the heart of the conversation at the beginning. Okay. Um, missional focus with a open field theologically in terms of asking the questions, um, re-understanding uh, sort of the elements of Christian faith, but not in a way that was uh, de-rooted from history. Um, but I, in the last couple of years, it seems as though that has shifted where in we now get how to engage our postmodern culture missionally. That part of the story is sort of uh, already being settled, and the attention has been turned towards deliberate theological construction, beginning yep. with Pete Rollins' How Not to Speak of God. Oh, yeah. You had Doug Pettit's book coming out shortly thereafter, a couple years later, right. this one, uh, Christianity Worth Believing. Um, I think Samir's book, It's Really All About God, that came out this past winter, is another uh, iteration, addition to that theological journey. And Brian's book that just launched this week mm-hmm. uh, is sort of the theological manifesto of what is is being what, what is developing within this conversation, and I get that the conversation is broader than three white dudes. Okay, I mean, that's on my blog and sort of <laughs> responding to yeah. emergent. That's this is the the the, the trumpet sound, the trumpet uh, tune that is being resounded. That's beyond these three men. Uh huh. Okay, man. but let's get real here. It is also shaped in large part by by these guys. So what you're basically saying is is that the theological – so let me kind of t- take this back. Early on, sure. the question was how do we engage this, the, the postmodern culture with, with, the, with the Christian faith? You know, because a lot of people you – know, if you want to kind of get an idea of what we're talking about as far as the, the shift in the culture, uh, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And, um, you know, a, a, an iconic movie that kind of captures uh, the, the, the modernist ideas of the time would be the movie The Exorcist, you, where you have this clash between, uh, uh, you know, in the church of all places, you know, uh, you know, about what to do when something evil and supernatural appears. You have one group of people basically saying there's no such thing as demons and evil and stuff like that, and they stick their head in the sand because they're mod. We live in the modern era; we don't believe in that. And then you got the backwards, you know, priest who you know sounds like he's somewhere from medi- uh, the medieval fighting this uh, this force. Well, in today's day and age. You know, we don't sit there and question whether or not the supernatural exists, you know, just because we're scientific. In fact, now if you go you know, to the sci-fi channel, you can watch uh, programs like the Ghost Hunters where they're using scientific ev- uh, uh, instruments 
to try to document uh, the supernatural and the paranormal. I mean, right. th- you know, exactly. these are two things where back in the 70s, nobody would have ever thought to do that because science and the supernatural work, you know, as far as the East is from the West. And so postmodernism right. sticks stuff together that, that, you know, in the modern era wouldn't go. And as a result of it, there's a complete change in uh, in the questions that are being asked by people who are growing up in this culture. Their assumptions are different, and uh, some of these some of the approaches. In fact, I think the uh, the G. James Kennedy approach to evangelism that you were talking about really kind of work with a marketing modernist CEO American exactly. consumerist um, m- uh, mindset. And, yeah. um, and, you know, the kids coming up are just sick and tired of being, uh, trying to, somebody trying to sell them something. Exactly. So, exactly. All right. So I've got that then. And, and then, so somewhere along the, the line, they quit talking about how to reach the postmodern culture and actually began constructing theology. But it sounds like what ended up happening in this conversations is, is that postmodernism won and they just decided to completely rechange you know, to change the Christian faith, regardless of its of its historical rootings, uh, to come up with a new version that uh, that postmoderns could uh, swallow hook, line and sinker and not have to worry about right. it. Which, Chris, in large ways is a very liberal uh, methodology, because liberalism in the uh, 19th century broke from history. It was an effort to construct a faith outside of what had come prior. Whereas in the past you had, of course you had these moments where you had revisions within the church, within uh, historic Christian orthodoxy of what that meant to be a Christian. Perhaps not revision, but at least a re-understanding, right? But it was still tethered to what had come before. Uh Uh-huh. It was perhaps a rediscovery or recapturing of what had come beforehand, whereas what happened in the 19th century, thanks to the likes of uh, Schleiermacher and his cohort, was this deliberate effort to construct a faith that was devoid from the history that had preceded it. Right. And from my perspective, that seems to be the case here um, with what we're seeing in contemporary emergent in contemporary emergent conversations. Okay, so they they've basically jettisoned the historic Christian faith and are trying to from from the ground up create a new kind of Christianity that uh is basically appealing to and and anybody with postmodern sensibilities wouldn't have a problem with. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah, it seems that way. I mean, the fact that Brian could write in his book that the fall was not a fall, but in a sense, yeah. is mind-boggling. That there is no reference point to to anything within church history, right? And you know, what's, even the denial of original sin. To yeah, be honest, exactly. Even, yeah, <laughs> he's he's Eastern denying Orthodox it. Church. He's denying it even from within the the use of Genesis. You're basically right. saying, and the thing is, is that the very, some of the passages he quotes there from Genesis scream original sin and fall. You know, what was the whole exactly. flood about? You know. Now they'll claim, well, uh, the East didn't latch on to Augustinian theology, and we, we have more of an Eastern view of of sin. Well, they misinterpret history because the Eastern Church has a view of original sin. Yep. It isn't as strong. It's a weaker form than the Western view. Mm-hmm. Um, and while they did historically exonerate Pelagius as a person, Augustine made clear that they did not exonerate the man's theology. Right. 
okay? Or take the view of atonement. I, uh, a few years, two years ago, Doug had a online book club for his, his book that had come out that I was a part of, and we'd gotten to the part where he was talking about atonement and Jesus and the cross, and he clearly goes after uh, the penal substitutionary uh, understanding of atonement mm-hmm. and offers nothing as an alternative. So I asked him, and I'd share this as a, only because it's, this was a public conversation. This wasn't a private conversation, so I don't think I'm breaking confidence here by sharing. So I asked him not to goad him on or to provoke anything other than understanding his ideas. Uh, if you reject penal substitution, what other forms of atonement narratives do you hold to? Okay. Because within the Church you have recapitulation, you have Christus Victor, um, moral example. I mean, there's a handful that are perfectly orthodox, but varying degrees of understanding of how we should view what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And he said, I disagree with all of them. I don't hold any of them to be valid. Then what was Jesus doing on the cross? Why was he there? That is the mystery. You know, I think McLaren gives a, a picture of that in his uh, book, Everything Must Change. He basically writes this little, you know, this, you know, this picture that, you know, the wolves surrounded Jesus and, you know, and, and, you know, he stuck his neck out and they, you know, grabbed onto him. And once his disciples saw how evil the empire was, that they at that point had to defect from empire. I mean, that was his uh, description of, of what Jesus was doing on the cross. And the problem is, is that nowhere in the scriptures do you have anybody saying anything even remotely close to that. Probably close to that. So Jesus is a martyr. And that's what ca- that's what's cashed out in his newest book. Mm-hmm. Jesus on the cross is a martyr. He is an example of love, which is very typical within the, these theological conversations. And to be honest, it makes perfect sense in light of their view of sin. Yeah, we don't sin. We don't have an internal problem that needs to be dealt with. The problem are the systems and the patterns and habits that wage war against us. So instead of so, what we need is a better example. We need a better pattern to show us the way of love, to show us the way of uh, of integration with God, as Doug puts it, uh-huh. um, which is exactly what Pelagius said. Right. Isn't that fascinating? So, <laughs> so yeah, exactly. So it, it, to kind of take it to its next logical step, then, it, 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 what uh, I've talked about this before, too, is what's running under the hood is a Hegelian philosophy that we're progressing and evolving upwards. And so yeah. they're trying to give birth to, uh, give voice to, uh, whatever the new step in our evolution is that we're supposed to become, it's something beyond empire, you know. Exactly. And so, um, you know, because we've uh, we've ascended from being agricultural uh, hunter gatherers to an agricultural point of view to right. c- city dwellers now to empire, and we've got to make that next level of uh, uh, jump in our evolution as a species to continue to ascend. But with it's almost like a yin and a yang. With each evolutionary ascent, there's there's even greater evil that we're capable of, and we have to wrestle with that as we continue to ascend whatever this thing is. Exactly. And what is just nutty is that there is no context historically for the ways in which these people are talking about uh, what they're talking about. Right. It is so innovative, and to be honest, innovation never ends well in the church. It really doesn't. Theological right. innovation never ends well. <laughs> and this is, for me, what, is, what has what disturbed me to the point of saying goodbye, which is why I publicly went 
outed myself as a, I guess, a post-emergent, if you will, um, theologically, not relationally. But I, I just couldn't, I cannot handle what is being said anymore. It, it is, it's so far off the map that there's no reference. There's no longer any reference for these ideas. And it's, it's just odd. It's really quite odd. Yeah. yeah it, it, and uh, the other part of it, going back to something you said earlier, is, is that these ideas, these inter- interpretations, these innovations are, first of all, they're not found in the scripture. Um, you know, and what I tell people is, is that, you know, when we look at scripture as a whole, um, the gospels themselves are historical narrative, but the epistles written by, uh, by the apostles, um, those letters give us the theological interpretation of this, of those historical events. So they're commentary on the, on the historical events that we read in the gospels. They're working out the way of Christ. Exactly. And what they are. and as a result of it, you know, if if we don't if we don't have one of the apostles, you know, it's, you know, telling us, you know, that this is what the, Jesus's death on the cross was about. We don't have any. We don't have any apostles talking about God's benevolent society, uh, you know, being you know instituted on the earth. We don't have any of them saying anything of the sort. Instead, what we hear is. Uh, we hear about our sin. We hear from Paul that we are sinful by nature, dead in trespasses and sins, which, by the way, is what Jesus taught. I mean, sure. in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says to people, he says, and you're you know, talking about, and you being evil, you are still able to give good gifts to your children. How much more so your father in heaven? And just that, that statement, you who are evil. I mean, Jesus didn't think people were good. And, you know. Yeah, and, and and then you look at Isaiah fifty three. It says that he was pierced for our transgressions. You know, or Paul says he, you know, Christ was crucified for our sins. So you have this sin redemption, and and what Christ is doing on the cross makes perfect sense in light of the Old Testament history. Uh, where, exactly. And the whole sacrificial system set up under the Mosaic law, the scapegoat, and the and the and the Day of Atonement, and all that. You you realize that's exactly what's being played out in Jesus's life, all the way to the scapegoat part, where uh, you know they they release Barabbas. You know, it it, it the whole you know, it's yeah. all there. You know, Chris, I just had an idea. I'd be very interested to under to know what they would do with the Book of Hebrews. Hebrews is not Pauline, or it's not understood to be Pauline, um, but totally puts Jesus within a broader Jewish context as the climax of the story of God, of, right. of the people of Israel. Right. And it's very clear, very clear, that he is a substitute, mm-hmm. a, the final sacrifice for the sins of the people. Exactly. And not That's only that... Great. Actually, I've never heard anything done with that before. And uh, I'd, be, I'd be interested to understand how they, how they, what they do with that book. Right. Because no. it is clear that Jesus is both God... Um, yeah. and the Son of God. He is very human yep. and very God. And he acts as our high priest in the same way that the high priests acted to bring, to to make atonement for the sins of the people. Yeah. They, there was something wrong with them, not with the systems around them. <laughs> exactly. And here's the thing, is, is that the good news of Christ's death on the cross for our sins would then be good news even for Caesar. 
You know exactly. You know exactly. You know it, 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 they seem to think that you know the great evil that we have to fight against is, is Caesar or you know things representing Caesar. But the gospel that I see laid out in the scriptures is good news even for uh, um, imperialistic oppressors. You know, yeah. so yeah. yeah, it's oh man, interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay, so and then the other thing I was going to point out is is that when you read the writings of the apostolic fathers, I mean you you know prior to Augustine. Okay, uh, you read the writings of Clement of Rome, Papias, uh, Mathetes. You know, these guys pick up on the identical themes and the same interpretations of the gospel narratives that the apostles taught. And they talk about sin, death, redemption, Christ being pierced for our transgressions. And so you, you see coming right out of the gate um, yeah. this, this, this call to repentance and the forgiveness of sins and that all human beings are... Uh, no, no one is righteous, and everyone is in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ, and, and he died for the sins of the world. And you, you get this unbroken chain, but then you get to the, you know, you get to uh, McLaren's era, you know, you know, him coming into his heyday 10, 15 years ago, and he's completely breaking with all of Christian history and the scriptures. Exactly, and that's what really concerns me and saddens me. Uh and that seems to be this deliberate effort to ignore and to reject what history and the Spirit of God has given us. Right. Because what we have now, 2,000 years removed from uh, the Jesus event, right, and the the follow-up event through the writings of the apostles, the early church, in interpreting how how the way of Christ uh, works within our world, how that looks... um, is at this point not there's not much more to fiddle with if if that makes sense right i think that and that's why for me for people who become so innovative theologically it's it's really concerning <laughs> because what we have now isn't there's not a whole lot of room to read to rediscover anew what god is teaching us or right But I'll say this, though, as somebody who's been a student of the Bible now for, you know, practically my entire life, um, I I am discovering new things in it every time I open it. Well, of course, right. You know, the depth of it, there's a newness to the whole thing. You know, though, you said something really interesting. You said that you had gotten involved in an Episcopal church, and and it was – that helped kind of ground you in some of the historicity of the Christian faith, including the creeds. Had a similar experience in that, you know, I grew up – uh, in the in uh, James Dobson's uh, church, uh, Pasadena Nazarene, and uh, and you know almost walked away from Christianity. And literally, Lutheranism, you know, the Lutheran Church saved me. But I mean, got to tell you, I was frightened to death. But at the same time, it was so new and refreshing to discover historic faith that holds on to these historic creeds. And you know, to be a part of a church service where I confess the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed every single Sunday, and right. and and what's funny is is that just in confessing those creeds, if I believe the Nicene Creed, I can't believe uh, the emergent eschatology because it, exactly these the, these creeds that come that go all the way back. We hear these things like, "And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end." Yeah. <laughs> Well, that tells you that the, the Christianity from the beginning has believed that Christ is going to return to judge the living and the dead. You know exactly, and that's the sort of that rule of faith 
uh, that I spoke of in my blog post. Uh huh. Recognizing that this is the point at which, in, in its narrowest sense, we flow out of, and that was probably really helpful in my own journey back when I was still in Washington D.C. to be a part of this community and and keeping me rooted, despite what else I was reading and, and discovering and thinking about theologically uh, within the emerging church conversation. Right. So, so so having some historical roots, thanks to the Episcopal Church of all things. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, with the, the more evangelical conservative Episcopal Church. You but. know what, the, 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 you know what though, down in the South, I mean, there's, I mean, like South Carolina, the Episcopal Church in South Carolina is an island unto itself. Those guys... <laughs> <laughs> you know they they are cons- conservative confessional Anglicans, and it, it's you know it, it, love what those guys are doing down there. But uh, so you know, I, I find it interesting that one of the things that really helped you was the historical aspect of this. And so you so in studying the scriptures and in studying church history and reconnecting yourself with Christianity through the millennia, um, yeah. and and then that's that's a nice thing, uh, you know. Because one of the things that the postmodern guys talk about is the fact that we all ha- approach the scripture with lenses, and they're right. You know, we have cultural lenses that we see things through. And what I always tell people is, I said they're right about that. However, C.S. Lewis picked up on this, you know, fifty, sixty years ago, and basically has this wonderful little uh, thing he wrote called on on the reading of old books. And so he makes the argument, yeah, just like a fish can't see the water it's swimming, and and you don't necessarily see your assumptions. That's exactly the case with us. But the solution is read old books, get out of the 20th century, get out of the 21st century, where a lot of the assumptions are the same, and read Augustine, read Tacitus, read uh, read, read all these uh, Eusebius, read uh, you know, read Mathetes, you know, read the Church Fathers, read the Reformers, uh, different Christians from different eras, from different times with different assumptions, and you'll begin to see your assumptions really easily. You know, right. and, and it'll help ground you in something where you can see kind of the stream of, as you call it, the rule of faith, the stream that comes down to us even today, even with our American trappings. Exactly. So. And that will hopefully peel away those trappings. Yeah. In order to uh, really understand what what is this thing, what is the story that we have committed ourselves to? Right. Right. All right, so so you had these questions, you saw that there's the things, and now you've, you've parted ways. By the way, real quick, side note, um, I, I read your blog uh, on the air when you were at the uh, at Rob Bell's Poets, Prophets, Priests, whatever convention. Yeah, and, uh, convention. And uh, there was some, uh, man, the stuff that you wrote about you know made my hair curl um, regarding uh-huh. Shane Hips and some of the things that he was saying. What's uh-huh. your, what's your take on Rob Bell? Um, you know, I think he kind of hangs out in the uh, outer rim of the uh, emergent conversation. I don't see him as a cohort person, but I see he still has no, a lot yeah. of these ideas uh, rattling around in his theology. Yeah, that's a uh, good question. You know, I don't. I don't know. I really don't know Rob personally. I, you know, living in Grand Rapids, no. Um, you know, have had experiences with his church and and with him and in different settings. And Rob, you know, certainly is his own thinker, his own person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not put him in sort of the emergent camp. I know he has himself has uh, not defined himself that way. 
Um, but he is friends with Pete Rollins. He is friends with Shane Hips. Shane Hips has just joined the teaching staff of Mars Hill Church. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it sort of makes me wonder what, where is Rob getting his theological understanding from? Who is he reading? And and how is how are the likes of Shane and Rob or Shane and Pete influencing the way in which he views scripture and um, our understanding of the story? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he's he's a little bit more he's a little more difficult to get a radar fix. He's not. I I, I think he defies description at times. So. Uh, interesting. All right. Well, another yeah, another yeah. question. While you were involved in it, uh, did you uh, do any of the contemplative mysticism practices that are so famous uh, for having been revived as a result of the uh, emergent conversation like the Lectio Divina, these uh, p- prayer labyrinths, uh, the prayer examen, uh, any of that stuff? Were you involved? Did you get involved in any of the mysticism that was going on in there? Uh, not entirely. Uh, actually, in... Um one of the aspects I did appreciate and do appreciate about the emerging church is um, at least a recapturing of not all of it, but some of what the the church has used to experience um, God in a more spiritual sense. I, uh, I have walked the labyrinth before at the, um, actually the national cathedral has uh, a labyrinth service and the way in which I approached it and understood it was that it is, um, a sort of way of praying uh, more than it is about this uh, ethereal, spiritual, mystical experience. Um, but I, yeah, enjoyed recapturing the idea of silence and solitude, and I think that's in fasting and, and whatnot. But uh, no, I, I didn't really trend deeper into the yoga practices and <laughs> um, the other more mystical practices that have been associated with uh, emergent okay yeah I, I just i'm not sure how how universally adopted or how deep uh, that goes and you know because it seems like it's just one of the things that's on the table you know kind of one of the the pool toys in the water if you would uh sure yeah so okay sure well where yeah. do you go from here uh, jeremy what you know what's 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 your trajectory where where are you you know six months from now where are you uh you know five years from now what's where's all this heading for you huh. that's a good question uh this has broken much wider than i expected uh when i initially dropped my blog post i expected perhaps you know 80 to 100 people who were my followers, quote-unquote, online um, with my blog and my Facebook and, and my own circle of friends. I thought that this might spark a conversation or two. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I as I said before, I'm, what I wrote, I'm just saddened by the trajectory within this part of, I don't even think you could call it evangelicalism anymore, but right. the church, at least, and I... I, as a pastor, as a, if you could say, a theologian of sense, um, have a deep passion for the story, for God's story of rescue, for the text, and a deep passion for connecting people to that story, both mm-hmm. inside uh, the church, helping them rediscover what that story is and their connection to it, 
um, and those especially who have left the church. Mm-hmm. I live in a part of the country where there are a lot of spiritually disillusioned young adults who have grown up in a very Christian area of the church and have left and are searching after something that is meaningful and, and connecting uh, for them. And and my fear, maybe not fear, but my, my concern is there that this alternative, this new, fresh, quote-unquote, different version of Christianity is what they are stumbling into. And and as a pastor in this area, as as a thinker, um, I hope to be able to reconnect them to the story, the story that history and the Spirit has helped us understand over the course of the Church's life. Um, and I'm not scared that emergent is going to destroy the Church. Jesus is much more powerful than that. Uh, he is the one who is building the Church and it is his, and I'm just trying to take my place in that in that building and that story to help uh, people find um, rescue through Christ and be put back together again through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Interesting, good good stuff. I I, I agree with you. I think that Christ is so much more powerful than the emergent conversation, and I think. Should the Lord continue to tarry and the day of judgment continue to hang out, you know, keep, you know, not come, then I think what we might end up seeing is is that Brian McLaren and Doug Paget and Tony Jones will take their their, their place beside men uh, names like Marcion, uh, <laughs> uh, Arius, uh, you know, uh, Eutychius, uh, uh, you know, right. in the story, and uh, you know, the, the, I think they're going to end up taking their place. You know, in that list of names, uh, rather than the great defenders of the Christian faith. Yeah, uh, well, I guess we will see. Yeah, so we will see. All right, well, Jeremy, thank you for the interview. A very interesting story, great conversation, and uh, you are in my prayers and in my family's prayers, and uh, we will pray that uh, you will be that, that God will guide you to where He wants you to proclaim Christ and Him crucified for the sins of the world, uh, and that uh, and that you'll find a way to reach out uh, with the gospel to those people who have been disillusioned by the church, because I'm I'm finding. Same thing in our in our congregation that there are people who are showing up uh, as a result of basically being burned out or just dis- being disillusioned by uh, the shallowness and vapidity of the uh, church, and they're looking for something real and grounded and and that has depth and significance and meaning to it beyond just therapy. So uh, exactly. So we'll we'll pray to that end. So. Well, hey, thanks, Chris. All right. Well, uh, blessings to you. And again, your uh, website address is novuslumen.net. Yes. N o v u s l u m e n dot net. Yes. You know, I'm. You know, we'll be keeping an eye on you and and hoping to see how uh, things unfold with your continuing conversation. So. Great. Hey, thanks. All right. Well, thank you. All right. So, what do you think? Interesting story, isn't it? And what should be our Christian response? Pray for those who are caught up in the emergent conversation in the emergent church. They're believing a different, an, a, an other gospel. Uh, they're not. It's this isn't new and fresh Christianity. This is old, stale liberalism. 
uh, with some new features, but it's still the same wormy meal that sends people to hell. So love to get your feedback, though. And uh, the way you send me your feedback is by emailing me or visiting me on uh, on Twitter or Facebook. So uh, the way you do that, my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Of course, if you'd like to follow me on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> 